0: Farming with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Welcome to episode 155 of the Robots Podcast. I am Jana and today we're headed down under for a closer look at robots for zero-tillage agriculture. But first, as always, here's Christine with the news.
1: Thank you, Jana. Have you ever wished to attend a conference that was too far away, expensive or sold out? Whether you're a penniless researcher, interested youth or anyone else, your wish may be granted. The PeopleSpot is a project by Chelsea Barabas and Nathan Matthias from MIT's Center for Civic Media that uses telepresence robots. In the past, telepresence robots have been used in the workplace to reduce travel expenses and in a home environment to maintain interpersonal communication with the elderly. Now, the PeopleSpot telepresence robot will allow some of those interested to participate in conferences they would otherwise be unable to attend. Time slots for the PeopleSpot are available at the highly popular Computer-Human Interaction Conference, or CHI. If you're interested in CHI, but like many people can't afford to go, it looks like you can still bid for a much cheaper telepresence opportunity on eBay. Bid on eBay to attend the History of Wearables and Google Glass exhibit at CHI. All proceeds go to the CHI Student Travel Grants. Good news for those looking for employment in robotics, RoboJobs has just launched their beta site. Unlike other job hunting sites, RoboJobs is a new dedicated job sport for the global robotics community that connects both seasoned robotics experts and recent top graduates with entrepreneurs and established businesses seeking the brightest minds to fill their ranks. Also, RoboJobs is in collaboration with Silicon Valley Robotics in an effort to provide visibility to the top jobs in robotics. Roboticists can post their resumes and view ads for free. Prospective employers can publish job postings at competitive rates and at the same time know that the dollars they are spending will help support Robohub's nonprofit efforts to bring you the latest in robotics news. For more information on robotic conferences and job opportunities, visit robohub.org.
0: Tillage is the preparation of agricultural land using mechanical agitation, for example, using plows. No tillage, or zero tillage farming, in contrast, is a way to grow crops without disturbing the soil. Zero-tillage farming has many advantages over using tillage, including avoidance of soil erosion and an increase in soil fertility. However, without tilling, there is one major problem, and that's weeds. These have to be removed by farmers, a time-consuming and tedious effort. Professor Peter Cork from the Queensland University of Technology is looking into how robotics might help solve this problem. He spoke to our interviewer, Ron, about the prototype called Agbot, a small robot that can explore a 4,000 hectare wheat farm using sensors that target weeds while they're in their infancy.
2: I'd firstly like to welcome you to the podcast, and if I can get you to introduce yourself to the listeners.
3: Thanks for the invitation, Ron. Uh, My name's Peter Cork. I'm a professor of robotics and control at the Queensland University of Technology, Uh, I guess my interest in robotics for the longest time has been around how we incorporate the sense of vision into robot systems. So I did a lot of research a while ago on visual servoing systems. Uh, I recently wrote a book called Robotics, Vision and Control. And more recently, I guess my application interest has shifted to the problem of agriculture, where I think robots can make a really large contribution.
2: Uh, specifically the robotic zero-tillage agriculture project that your uh, team is uh, working on, if you could um, give us an outline on uh, where you're going.
3: Sure. So the best practice for agriculture in Australia anyway is what they call zero-tillage agriculture, and that means that you don't plough the soil. It's considered now a bad thing to plough the soil. Uh, It damages the soil structure and the microbes and all the things that live in there. So what you have to do then is to do the whole growing cycle without ploughing. So you put the seeds in the ground, uh, they grow, and eventually you harvest them. But what you have to do is to stop all the weeds uh, that would compete with the plants that you want. Uh, And the the weeds compete for nutrients and for moisture. You need to get rid of them, but you're not allowed to plough. So the way the process works is you do chemical weeding. So you do spraying cycles, maybe six times per growing season. You uh, spray uh, chemicals like Roundup, a fairly benign herbicide that kills the weeds and allows your plants to grow. So that's what 0 tillage agriculture is. So to make it work, you've got to do this chemical weeding. And to do the chemical weeding productively... Uh, farmers drive these great big spray rigs. So they've got booms, maybe it's 30 metres wide, and it drives you know up and down the field, uh, pumping out this herbicide. Very massive machine. Uh, and it has to be a massive machine so that the guy can get a lot of work done. So one of the problems with a really massive machine is it's very heavy. Uh, and what that tends to do is to crush the soil where the machine's driving uh and damage that soil in fact sort of it's counterproductive in some ways another problem is that you want to take this big spraying rig out after it's rained because that's when all the weeds come up and then a really big heavy machine is very likely to get bogged and not be able to drive very practical problem but a real one another problem is these machines are massively expensive they could be half a million dollars easily Uh, And another problem is that if the machine breaks in any way, it's a big, complex machine. If it breaks, then the farmer's got no spraying capacity at all. So we looked at this problem and said, why is the machine so big? All these problems come from the machine being big. the machine's big because it's got a driver in it. If you want to make the driver as productive as possible, you put him in the biggest machine you can. So we're roboticists and we say, we don't need a driver. And if you take away the assumption of having a driver, everything changes. And so what we're thinking about, what our project is all about, is saying, okay, let's go back and let's build a large number of small machines. They're all autonomous. There's no driver involved. Small machines are cheap. They're not heavy, so they don't crush the soil. They're not as likely to get bogged. And if one machine breaks but you've got 20 in the field, then you've only lost 5% of your capacity. You haven't lost 100% of your capacity. So our project is about reinventing, reimagining this process of chemical spraying.
2: So you're basically talking about swarm robotics in agriculture. There's a lot actually that I've heard about that's been done. What separates your approach to other approaches?
3: So swarm robotics is an area that, to be honest, I haven't had that much to do with uh, so far in, in my career. I think it's probably a fairly elementary example of swarm robotics. We don't need the robots to communicate that much. Uh, If they're operating in a a field where there's crop planted, the robots are a bit constrained in where they can go. They really should be driving up and down the rows of crop, not driving sideways across it. That would be a bad thing to do. So really what we need to do is say, okay, we've got this paddock, it's got uh, this boundary, and we're going to put N robots into that field, then we need to do a partitioning uh, of the field so that the N-robots can really operate quite independently. So we're not talking about robots which are closely communicating with one another, knowing where each other are. Really, it's a divide and conquer approach. Uh, we're just going to give each of them one nth of the paddock and, uh, and let them go to it.
2: Oh, okay, I see. Uh, spraying as, as being your uh, primary uh, item that you talked about, um, have you looked at things like um, mechanical weeding versus other types of organic weeding? I've heard of steam, fire, th- those kind of things that don't need to rely on the chemical companies?
3: Yeah, it's a really good question. It's one that we've uh, been talking uh, about quite a bit. And we're a bunch of engineers and roboticists uh but the idea of robots with flamethrowers or robots with lasers or plasma beams uh, is pretty exciting uh, but there has actually been some quite serious work uh, in weed destruction and people have looked at steam uh, so uh, that's, that has quite a, a good effect on, on weeds uh, there's been some interesting work I've seen recently on using microwaves uh, you know, microwave relatively cheap because of uh, consumer microwave oven, So you know the guts of the microwave oven, the magnetron, uh, is you know it's a ten dollar item, uh, and emits a beam of microwaves, which is enough to sizzle a weed in uh, about a second. Uh, there has been some work on lasers to to zap plants, and there's also just you know mechanical destruction. You know you, you hit it with you know the equivalent of a whippersnapper uh, or you know a mechanical hoe or something like that. So. Uh, yeah, there's there's quite a lot of options, and you know, the inner greenie in me thinks that maybe this is a better way to go than to be pouring uh, huge amounts of herbicide into into the landscape.
2: Of course, I understand the reality, the the costs involved in doing it, the amount of time uh, we'd be talking of a twenty four seven process to to do that um, selective uh, weeding. I take it that you're starting from the base spray technology to get a handle of of how successful that is, and possibly move move in the other direction depending on the needs.
3: Sure. So we we've started basically by building a small version of what our uh, our partner has now. So we're working with a, a wheat farmer uh, who's based in in further, further north in Queensland than than we are, near a place called Emerald. And so yeah, we've got a, a vehicle. It's a, a John Deere Gator. It's a small uh, electric runabout vehicle. You often see them in you know, parks and gardens, uh, used to, to carry material around. So we've got one of those. We turned it into a robot. We fitted a spray tank. We fitted a little little booms to it. Yeah, you know, it goes not doesn't go that quickly. Maybe sort of five kilometres an hour or something like that. Its booms only five metres wide. So it's about one twentieth as. Productive as the full-blown uh, spray rig that the farmer has, uh, and so yeah, we need to put twenty of them into a into a field to do the same work as as the big machine does. Uh, so I'm not sure I answered your question. Wrong.
2: Oh, that's okay. That's that's fine. Have you also considered things like selective spraying, where possibly send in a drone identify the spatial area, identify the type of weed and selectively deal with that particular weed?
3: Absolutely. Uh, We've done a little bit of work with drones to do surveys of the paddock to work out whereabouts there are infestations of weeds. And the other thing, uh, the other aspect of selectivity is the robot itself as it's moving along and it's got a bunch of spray nozzles. There's no point pouring spray out all the time. So uh, there is actually already some off-the-shelf technology that does this that uh, recognise the difference between a plant and bare ground, and it will only uh, turn, activate the nozzle when there's greenery there, not when there's the bare ground. Another interesting aspect and complexity in the whole thing is now that farmers have been pouring fairly benign herbicide on weeds for a few decades now, the weeds are fighting back. So there's now resistant weeds. There are weeds that are resistant to things like like Roundup. And this is a big problem. Uh, In fact, all around the world, resistant weeds are on the the rise, Europe, the US, and and Australia. because any place where herbicides have been used, you know, intensively for a long period of time. And this is a really big problem. Uh, We can kill these weeds that are resistant to Roundup by applying more toxic herbicide to them, also much much more expensive so i think what would be useful in the future is a system that actually goes along looks at a weed works out what it is and figure out what's the least dangerous chemical it can use that will kill that individual plant Uh, so that's one aspect but going back to your earlier notion of alternative ways of killing plants Uh, If we use microwaves or steam or mechanical destruction, I think it will take the plants a long time to evolve uh, any kind of resistance to to that.
2: So I take it then from that that you could uh, combine a whole bunch of processes depending on on A, the history of that particular plot of ground, creating a progressive map of the farm and then identifying resistant uh, plants, etc.?
3: Absolutely. Uh, I think there's lots of things to go if we, you know, apply some kind of intelligence to the to the problem. In, in this case, it's machine intelligence. And I, I think a little bit about the way we've we've changed the way we do agriculture. So, you yeah, maybe 500 years ago, you know, you have a small plot of land with a relatively small number of plants on it. And it was a family's job to look after those plants so people would probably go out every day and inspect the plants. And if there was a caterpillar, you'd take it off. And you know, if there was a diseased leaf, you'd take it off. But you know, I think the plants, once upon a time, got individualized attention from human beings. That's just too expensive now. We can't possibly afford to do that. But I think it's possible to for plants to have individualized attention from robots. So you know, I'm thinking the model, perhaps, of the future is it's a robot peasant, uh, who's going to go out and provide that level of attention, and and we can then perhaps look after the plants, you know, in a in a better way than just by broad brush application of chemicals. If you go out and take off the disease leaf, crush the caterpillar, uh, crush the grasshopper, yeah, you know, maybe that's a maybe that's a better way to go.
2: Okay, as you originally pointed out at the beginning that. You're trying to overcome the cost, obviously, of uh, the equipment, the people, etc. Have you seen any tangible uh, cost benefits that, so far? Um, is there kind of like a a, a gauge as far as uh, how many robots per acre? You're looking at conventional wheeled vehicles versus, I guess, um, hexapods, um, you know, the uh, all-terrain vehicles, that kind of thing.
3: The we've ruled out flying vehicles for the time being uh, Hexcopters, octocopters and machines of that ilk really don't have the endurance uh, you know, maybe they can fly for 20 minutes but they can't carry very much payload so I don't think that's going to be, that's going to be an option uh, any time in, in, the, in the next 10 years so our vehicle is a wheeled vehicle so going back earlier uh, to the point rather that I made earlier that the machine that we've built now, a small robot, is got 1 the productive cap- capability of the big machine. Yeah, this big machine costs half a million bucks. Our machine can do one twentieth its work. So all other things being equal, we need to build a machine for 1 20th the cost, right? So then you could buy 20 little machines, you could buy one big machine, cost you the same amount of money, will do the same amount of work. I think actually the little machines have got additional merits, but we'll take that out for the time being. So that means we need to build a machine for the order of 25,000 bucks. So that's a sort of a number uh, that we're using internally to try and think about uh, how we'd go about building a machine. If it sells for 25,000 bucks, clearly you've got to be able to build it. All the components have got to cost a good deal less than that. And our focus has been on the navigation a lot of these big agricultural machines are guided by real-time kinematic GPS, RTK GPS. And those receivers are generally maybe five to five to $10,000 for an RTK GPS receiver. They can tell your vehicle where it is to within a few centimeters. And that's great. But I think in a $25,000 vehicle, we can't afford uh, a sensor like that. So The research part of our project has been figuring out, well, okay, what's uh, an alternative and much, much cheaper way of working out where the robot is in the field? And we're using vision, so we're just using uh, some cheap webcams. Uh, We do real-time stereos. That tells us obstacles in the field. We look at the pattern of the crops, and that tells us where we are with respect to the crop rows, so we can steer along crop rows. We can avoid obstacles now. We've got some very bright lights on the vehicle, so we have demonstrated the ability to work at night. Uh, And then we can just use very low quality GPS to help us deal with the situation at the end of the paddock where we need to turn around. So we're looking at a a grab bag of very low cost sensors, low cost GPS, uh, low cost cameras, and then throwing a lot of software and computational resource at that sensory data to get an estimate of where the robot is.
2: Where is the kind of the timeline for all of this? This is still in the first stage of research. Is, are there steps um, that you're working towards for a product?
3: So at the moment, uh, as you say, we're in, in a research phase. We have a,
2: a research grant
3: from the Australian Research Council. and We're in our second year of that now. We've uh, done a number of field trials, and we're fairly comfortable about the technical direction of the project. Clearly, the big challenge for us is how do we get that technology out into the world? So we received uh, recently some additional funding from the Queensland State Government, and that is to do the translation from research results into, uh, into results which can be used in the industry. So we need to find commercial partners, we need to you know, crank up manufacturing uh clearly you need sort of sales and support networks. So we're wanting to talk to anybody who's got those kinds of capabilities and is willing to uh invest in or have a punt on uh small low cost modular farm robots. And we're calling these things agbots.
2: Very good point. Very interesting. Is there any benefit in looking at the automation of other processes apart from zero tillage, like uh, harvesting and planting? Could these be separate small robots?
3: We, we haven't reached a conclusion on, on this. I mean, the model with agri- big agriculture is you have a tractor, which is a generic machine that pulls stuff, and then you can pull a spray rig, or you can pull a, pull a seeding machine, or you could pull a plough. Uh, harvesters have kind of morphed into one very special purpose machine. A, a combine harvester is basically a mobile factory uh, that, you know, chops the crop at the front, separates it, threshes it, and throws wheat, you know, your grain out one side and waste out the back. So whether you have a number of machines with separate functions or whether you have one machine to which you bolt on different functional units... Uh, I think we'd be advised by you know, commercial people and industry people on what was the best way to go. There will be some common elements, whichever way you go. There's going to be a mobility system, uh, and is that you know, electric propulsion or diesel propulsion. Uh, there's going to be a navigation system, which is going to tell the vehicle where it is with respect to the crop. Uh, so at the moment, we're just going to work on those generic modules and I think it's up to any industrial partner to advise us which, which is the best way to go. Oh,
2: I see. Yeah. From personal experience, weeding takes a great amount of the farmer's time. So anything that you can do to remove that or simplify that task is a benefit to them.
3: Correct. And one of the reasons that we chose this chemical weeding is in any growing cycle, you plant once, you harvest once. But you spray six times, roughly. So therefore, it makes sense to choose the spraying as the task that you would automate first, because it's the one that happens most per growing season. So any you know efficiencies and savings you can make in the spraying process, uh, you know, are going to be uh, are going to be seen six times over. or any saving you make in, in planting or harvesting is is going to perhaps have less benefit. The other issue with spraying is that it doesn't require uh, any contact with either the ground or the crop. So the machine doesn't have to be particularly strong. It just has to roll across the ground. Whereas in order to do seeding, uh, you either need to make a very small furrow and drop the seeds into it uh, or have some kind of shooting mechanism that can fire the seeds into the ground. But the depth at which you plant the seeds is pretty critical. So, you know, that's that's on the list for things to do in the future. Right now we thought we'd go with, with spraying because, yeah, it happens lots of times per season and we think it's fairly simple as these things go.
2: Okay. I, I haven't thought of that aspect, actually. That's it's interesting you pointed that out. Um, we've kind of digressed. Yes, we but, <laughs> um, Sorry. Um. <laughs> uh, Rolling back to agriculture, yeah. um, this is the main question we, we ask um, uh, everyone is um, where do you think robotics is, is heading in agriculture? Where do you think the next uh, 10 to 50 years what do you think that we're um, going to be able to achieve?
3: In agriculture, we've got a bunch of social social problems or societal problems around agriculture. Uh United Nations is saying we need to have I don't quote me on these numbers. It might be fifty percent more food production by twenty forty. It's something like that. Uh that's that's significant because and it's likely due to population increase. And but the you know the amount of arable land that we have is getting less because we're not looking after the land well and we need place we need to to put houses up so people can live there. So we're encroaching on, on productive farmland, but yet we need more we need more food output. Farmers as a, as a whole are getting older, less people are interested in doing agriculture. So what I think is going to happen is there is going to be a, a demand for robots in agriculture. It's not that robots are going to push people out of agriculture. I think we're going to have a crisis. We're going to say, how on earth are we going to get the agricultural production we need on the planet? to feed all the people we don't want to have starvation and I think people are going to say robots are going to be an important part of that that's the motivation I know I, I would hope in 10 years time that we're going to see uh, a reasonable amount of automation on farms already we have GPS guided tractors and things like that uh, people still sit in the tractor even while it's being GPS guided and you know, I would hope 10 years time We should have autonomous cars on the road in 10 years' time, so we should have autonomous machines uh, in paddocks uh, at that time.
2: That concludes the interview for today. On behalf of the podcast, I'd like to thank you, Peter, for your time, and I hope to speak to you again.
3: No worries at all, Ron. Good to chat. Thanks. (music)
0: And that's the end of this episode. If you're intrigued about robotics in agriculture, you can find plenty more agriculture-relevant podcasts on our website at robotspodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Farming with... Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.